And uh, we're talking about uh, in our continual continuing series on Saul. And First Samuel 15 is probably the best known passage about Saul's life. It's the one most often quoted. We look at First Samuel 15 as the catalyst and turning point. And of course, we've already seen the pattern emerging in Saul as disobedience. But uh, this is the big one. This is the the chapter where that great verse we use so often that obedience is better than sacrifice and and uh, that great lesson that we learned through that. But I want to break this chapter. I'm going to probably be a few weeks in this chapter because, again, it is one of the most well-known uh, scenes out of his life. But uh, his disobedience we see is coming pretty much whenever Saul feels any pressure, any kind of stress, or any kind of uncertainty. Uh, he lapses into disobedience. And it's like, really like people today still, when all is well, they'll serve God. When everything's going good, uh, they'll be faithful at church, they'll do the right thing. But as soon as uh, circumstances come, uh, hard times come, they will listen to the flesh rather than the Word of God. The circumstances of culture, friends, popularity, wealth, all those things have a higher priority in many people's lives than the uh, Word of God does. So, Saul's failure is not extinct in our day and age by any means, and it does serve as a warning for us, which is the whole purpose of looking at a chapter like this. How do we not fail the way Saul did? So let's uh, read a few verses here. Verse uh, verse 1, chapter 15. Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not, but slay both men and women, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Now think about that verse. We're going to talk about that in extent tonight. But killing men, women, Infants and nursing babies. That's what that's talking about there. And all their animals. That's what he was supposed to kill. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. Oh, wait, verse 4. And uh, uh, Saul gathered the people together, numbered them, and tell him 200,000 footmen and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said unto the Kenites, Go, depart, get you from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For they, for you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when you came out, out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And that's where we'll end tonight, because that's about as far as we'll get. But I want to look at those verses and take what we can. But let's ask God to bless it. I ask you, Father, tonight to bless the reading of your word. And Lord, may we learn something from it that will be a help to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God, through Samuel gave Saul some commands here, actually very clear, concise command concerning the Amalekites. And this is where uh, Saul disobeyed and it is going to bring tragic results. The command is found in verse 3. So now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both men and women, infant and suckling, oxen, sheep, camel, and ass. God made it very clear what Saul was to do. And when God gives us orders, we have no excuse for disobeying them, especially being this plain, and many orders in scriptures are this plain, by the way, that people still choose to ignore. But uh, we Saul could not say he did not understand the order later. 
Uh, it was very clear. Utterly destroy all. Man, woman, infant, child, nursing child, animals. When you see that verse, does that bother you a little bit, reading that verse? It does, doesn't it? Um, I mean, when you start picturing, and I don't want to be crude or anything tonight, but just picture the slaughter, the battle, swords, knives, weapons, ripping babies, suckling babies from mothers, killing them. That's what you're supposed to do. This is a favorite text for God-hating unbelievers. They use it at length. And uh, they'll use this text as an example that the God of the Old Testament is a monster. I'll read you a quote by Richard Dawkins. He wrote the book, The God Delusion. He's a, he's a strong atheist. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infants, infancidal, uh, I knew I'd have problems saying these words, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, is that the right way to say that? Uh, sodomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Wish he'd have told us what he really thinks, but that's what he said about God. One of the reasons is this text right here. They use this text as an example. People who want to dispute God or make God into some kind of monster will use this text and ask, what about this commandment? So let's talk about it for a second, shall we? Now, to start off with, I would just like to say that I'm not in a habit or position of defending God. or I'm not his apologist, nor should anybody be. God is God. I am very finite. My knowledge is very limited. All of ours are. And God is supreme. Um, God is God and doesn't need me or you or anybody to look up, hey, now, why did you that for? Or call him out on something. It, God is God. So that's what we ought to remember. But uh, let me tell you about the Amalekites for a minute. The, they were descendants of Amalek, which was the grandson of Esau. They settled in the Negev Desert uh, between Canaan and Egypt. They were nomadic. They lived in tents. They would follow the seasons uh, so that they would be able to feed their flocks and such. They were known in the ancient world as a cruel and brutal uh, people, vile people in their worship. They sacrificed their babies long before the Israelites were supposed to slaughter the babies. They sacrificed their own babies. They were wicked, godless people. When Israel left Egypt for the promised land, uh, it talks about in Deuteronomy chapter 25, the Amalekites attacked them unprovoked for no reason. They attacked the rearward part of Israel, so where the sick, the elderly, uh, the young, the slower people, and just killed them. This happened at Rephidim. And they just uh, slaughtered the innocents of Israel. So in Deuteronomy chapter 25, God made a promise that says, One day uh, thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. In other words, you're going to completely annihilate them. So he predicted in Genesis chapter, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 25, what he commanded in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Now, why would God do that? Again, I don't know. Why God does a lot of things, okay? I don't know why certain people get sick. Have you, 
I'm not trying to be blasphemous here at all, but have you ever wondered why certain people get sick and why other people don't? Haven't you ever thought of certain people that are just more deserving to get sick? than the, And it seems sometimes like the best people get sick. I, I remember having, uh, I have dear friends, and they still are friends. They now have two adopted children, but for 10 years, they desperately wanted a child. This, this, uh, his wife was just such a sweet lady, still is obviously a sweet lady, but she, uh, they just desperately wanted uh, children. They're an evangelist. He's now a, a pastor. Um, but uh, prayed for him, always had, every time they came through and did a meeting, they always put that as a prayer request. We're still praying God will give us a child. And for years, I they couldn't have children. And then I saw other people having children who didn't want them, who, who aborted them, gave them up. And I just wonder, why does God do what he does? Why didn't he give them children? They would love a child. And he gives children to somebody who aborts it. You know, I'm not speaking for him, and I'm not, I'm not questioning him, by the way. I'm just saying, we, we have these thoughts. Why does God do what he does? We don't know why God does what he does. We don't have to know why God does what he does. God is God. We are not. We need to accept that first off. But uh, the Amalekites, I do know, they were a cancer. This cancer needed to be removed, or it would continue to grow. Deuteronomy chapter 25, God made it very clear that the war with the Amalekites would continue from generation to generation to generation until you dealt with them. So, and now he gives the order to do so, and Saul disobeys him. Because Saul disobeys, time goes by, a few years later, David is living in Ziklag. If you remember that story, he goes off to fight a battle, and he and his men come back and find that the Amalekites had ransacked the village, torched the whole town, taken all the women, children, and the families of the soldiers away from them. Uh, the, uh, in the book of Esther, we'll be preaching on Esther on, on Sunday morning, uh, there's a man named Haman uh, that made, through him a decree was made that basically would kill all the Israelites. Every Jew would be exterminated. Haman was an Agagite, which is basically the, from the royal family of the Amalekites. So a generation, a whole generation, they think over a million people at that time that hadn't returned to the, to the homeland, they were still uh, living in Persia, and almost a million, a whole generation of Jews were wiped out because Saul disobeyed in 1 Samuel chapter 15. See, God could see all that. They can't. So we ask why God, and we should not ask why, we should just obey, as Saul should have. So is this a harsh commandment? Yes, it's a harsh commandment. We all understand that. But the same people that complain about God, and, and, and you, your Hawkins, for example, that complain about God being unfair here, just seem to gloss over the wickedness and the evil of the Malachites. The, the same people will complain about the sentences handed down in court that punishes the criminal and does so properly. They, they conveniently forget the innocent victims or the victims' families that still have to go on living with what was done against them or who was robbed from them. It's the same person that votes to murder a baby in the womb but will hold a candle for someone on death row for murdering ten people. There's a problem, and the problem is that there's a, they're more... I guess more uh, concerned about judgment than they are about wickedness. And so they're very quick to jump on someone who judges sin rather than the wickedness of the sin. What is the problem? People are more concerned with perceived misdeeds of the righteous than they are with the wicked. Th that 
It's the same reason. I just talked to somebody last week. Won't ever go to church. I'll never go to church. Because years ago, some preacher did something that he thought was mistaken, and now he'll never go to church. Never mind, and, and that's, he's not alone. Lots of people are like that. Never mind the wicked life they live in the meantime. Never mind the disobedience for the rest of their life. They'll never go to church again because one person did something wrong. And that it's because people are more concerned about the perceived misdeeds of the righteous than they are about wickedness. And so they're quick to jump on God here. No judgment from God is ever unjust. And it wasn't here. The Amalekites were wicked. Their sin was great. Their judgment was also going to be great. Uh, critics of divine judgment. Here's, a, here's a really another way you could put the problem. People who are critics of divine judgment are have a wrong view of two things. They have a wrong view of the holiness of God and the heinousness of sin. And so they, they're quick to jump on God's decision to do something, and they just look past the wickedness of sin. And one, one more thing, while I'm on a roll here with this whole thing, before I just trying to offend everybody equally, I guess. The mystery here is not God's wrath against wickedness. The mystery is why doesn't God do it more? Honestly. I mean, why doesn't he, why didn't he do it more to wicked humanity? I mean, he is a graceful, merciful, long-suffering God that he doesn't just wipe us out uh, many times over. Uh, I'm glad he doesn't, but have you ever thought about it from that aspect? Why doesn't he do this more? How much wickedness he allows to last in the world with his mercy and his long-suffering. The problem in our text is not uh, actually, I should say the problem in our society today is not the judgment of God, it's the wickedness of sinners. And we better remember that. Why don't we put our focus on our wickedness rather than his judgment? People are so quick to do that, including Mr. Hawkins and many others that are quick to point that, oh, God's unfair, they're completely avoiding the wickedness of humankind. That's the problem. The problem in our world is not God's judgment on mankind. The problem in our world is human wickedness. At that that's what brings more hurt and uh, harm to mankind. Drunkenness, child abuse, gambling, drugs, pornography, murder, all those things. God's not the problem in our society. Mankind is the problem in our society. And yet, people try to make God out to be the monster. By the way, anyone who looks at this text and takes issue with it better not vote for abortion. Amen? I mean... We, it just boggles my mind that the very people who are... He told them to kill babies. Yes to abortion. That doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, let's just let God be God. Let's stay in our lane, do what we know to be right, and uh, obey Him, be faithful, and let's not ever sit in judgment of God. All right. If, if you ever disagree with God on anything, sometimes we do. We read something and go, whew, I don't know about that. If I ever disagree with God on anything, I'm wrong. He's right <laughs> every single time, okay? And so let's just let God be God. Uh, the, he had the responsibility to obey the command. Now, the Bible says here in verse 1, Samuel is talking, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, hearken thou unto my voice of the words of the Lord. When Samuel gave Saul this command about the Amalekites, he stressed Saul's responsibility to obey. We all have a responsibility to obey God, obviously, but our responsibility increases when God elevates us to a position or a or increases our power or puts us on a pedestal of some sort. 
So essentially what he's saying, hey, God made you king, now you obey him. It's more important for Saul, would you agree, to obey God than it was the common man of Israel. Now it's both personally important, but as far as the nation of Israel, it's important that Saul obeys. So he's stressing, God put you in this position. Now it's very important that you obey what he tells you to do. Has God favored you with influence, position, money, talent, or any other means of benefit to uh, other people around you? If so, then we're expected to obey even more than before we had those things. I'll read you a verse, Luke 12, 48. For whomsoever much is given, of him much shall be required. If God gives us position or influence or a, a, a management or whatever it is over other people, then it is all the more important that we are obedient to him. Uh, too often we view our advantages, our positions, our power in selfish ways. We only see the privilege and the prestige and the personal pleasure of it, not our personal responsibility. And that's what's so important. God sees that in different ways. Look at verse 4 and 5. This is, this is a good sign. Saul gathered the people together, numbered them in Talium, about 200,000 footmen, 10,000 men of Judah. A couple of things about these two verses before we move on here. The amount of soldiers recruited means that Saul seemingly intends to obey. Uh, he did take the, he did take the, he did not take the command of God lightly. He got enough people gathered. Uh, the note about 10,000 coming from Judah, by the way, is a little bit, you could say it's a, it's a subtle condemnation for the tribe of Judah. They were on the southern border. Uh, this is where the Amalekites were coming from. So you'd think they would respond with the most troops, but they only gave 10,000. It's uh, even so today, sometimes the people that most are benefited by the church or things going on are the least supportive of it. We see this, this even in the church today. I, I don't know how many people our church has helped over the years that I've been here. And we rarely see them come we rarely ever see him again. You know, they always promise they'll be here and all that. But, but uh, those that are benefit often are the most unsupportive. Um, it breaks my heart for people who are raised in church and know better and just leave it. Never come back. Don't have anything to do with church anymore. Uh, it's an entitlement problem. And entitlement is, is not only limited to millennials. <laughs> we like to put it on them, but uh, other people have that problem too. Saul came to the city of Amalek, laid wait in the valley. Uh, he was ready to lay an ambush here. It, it seems like he's using a good strategy. And uh, so just too bad he doesn't uh, continue with it. All right, then uh, we get to the removal because of the commandment. Look at verse number 6. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them, for you have showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Uh, Saul gives a message now to the Kenites. They're living in the same area as the Amalekites there. He told them to leave the area so that they wouldn't be destroyed in the war here. The message here, I want to take two points from this verse, is the reward for servants, service and the requirement of separation. The two, two lessons we can take from this. We see a reward for service. Uh, they, they were kind. They had showed kindness to all uh, the children of Israel here is what the Bible says in verse number six. Uh, the Amalekites had terribly mistreated the Jews. The Kenites had showed kindness to the Jews. Can I remind you of a verse in Genesis chapter 12, verse three? I will curse them that curseth thee. I will bless them that bless thee. 
I, it, I believe that's still true today, by the way. And it was true. It was a promise given to Abraham. And so the I will bless them that blesseth thee, that applied to the Kenites. I will curse them that curseth thee, that applied to the Amalekites. And so God deals with people harshly that uh, mess with Israel. And God doesn't forget his promises of blessing. Now this here it is, years and years later, the Kenites have their payback. And uh, it doesn't always come right away. The rewards for serving God doesn't always come right away. But uh, if, even if we have to wait, God pays better interest than anything else that we can imagine. Uh, in history, we see that nations have been cursed by the mistreatment of the Jews and nations have been blessed for supporting them. I believe it's one of the reasons America is blessed. I had a lady call me today. I, she, she visited our church a while back and um, just wanted to talk about some things. But she, she called me because of that flag. She said, I was in, I've been in all kinds of churches. She says, I've went to lots of churches in Brookings. You're the, you're the only church in Brookings that has an Israel flag. Well, that's good. And she was very supportive of it and was pleased that we did that. But we support Israel. Amen? We pray for Israel. And we want to uh, continue to do so. I believe that it goes back to Genesis chapter 12. And then there's a requirement for separation here. Saul told the Kenites, go, depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. The Kenites were required to separate from the Amalekites if they wanted safety. There's a great picture here from Scripture, great illustration the, of separation to get help from God. Sometimes we have to separate from certain people certain philosophies, certain places. Let me read you a statement by Matthew Henry. It is dangerous being found in the company of God's enemies. It is our duty and interest to come out from among them, lest we share in their sins and plagues. Separation is still a thing. Amen? I know people don't preach about it much these days, but we still believe in separation. We separate from sin. We come out from among them. Uh, we want to as much as we can. Uh, to stay away from sinful influences in our lives. That does not mean we shun sinners, but we shun sin in our life. Jesus did not shun sinners, but he did not partake in any of their sin. And, and in spite of this uh, warning here, let me give you a verse, Revelation 18.4, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, that ye receive not of her plagues. And yet, few people today view separation from evil as a good thing or necessary. In fact, people leave churches over the fact that the church preaches separation, and I think that's an important part of living for God. Holiness is still an expectation. I know that many liberal churches of our day-to-day -day don't preach holiness and don't preach against sin and don't, uh, you know, you can be whatever you want to be. Jesus is love and God is love, accepts you as you are, and we have churches in town here with rainbow flags. You just come as you are and God will love you anyway. Well, he will love you and he will accept you, but he doesn't expect you to stay in your sin. We we uh, believe in separation. I tired a day of young people and, well, not just young people that want to mix with the world. And churches do the same thing, want to mix in with the world. Social drinking, wicked movies, uh, worldly music, worldly dress. And we ought to separate. We ought to have a line of separation between the world and the church. I'm going to talk about this a little bit on Sunday, but why, why would we want to tell people that there's something better than what the world has to offer? Come to church with me where we try to do everything just like the world does it. 
Why would I want to do, why would I want to mimic what we're trying to save them out of? And it makes no sense to me. The Lord's sheep have no business playing with the devil's billy goats, and yet we see it over and over and over. Our day wants to mix good with evil, godliness with ungodliness, virtue with vice, and un- unfortunately the church is doing the same thing. The church adjusts its music, adjusts its dress standards, adjusts all, adjusts all kinds of things to try to appeal to the world, and it doesn't appeal to the world. All it does is corrupt the church. That's what happens when you start to... I, I like how one preacher put it. You put the... Uh, many. Many churches today, you put the world and the church in a bag, mix it up and pour it out, you have no idea which is which anymore because there's just no separation there. The Apostle Paul said this to the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians six seventeen: Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you. We are to be separate. There's a time we need to be separate. By the way, separation is not a negative doctrine. When we preach separation, a lot of times people, oh, not again. Because they don't like to think about the doctrine of separation. But separation is not only from, separation is to. Paul said, uh, called himself several times, Paul, uh, an apostle, separated unto the gospel. I, I like, always like to use the uh, example of marriage. Marriage separates you, let's use me as an example, as a man, separates me from every other woman in the world. Okay. I didn't think about that, though, when I got married. I didn't think about the fact of all the heartbroken ladies that would be out there now in the world, you know. I, I, I was separating unto. You understand what I'm saying? We all did that. I don't care about everybody else. I'm separating to someone. And when we use the word separation, it's not a negative thing. We're separating to the Lord. That means I want to separate from anything that would take me further away from Him. I want to separate anything that would corrupt me or would dilute my love for Him. That's the idea of separation then is a positive thing. Why would we ask people to come to church if we are just like the life that we're asking them to leave? If our music sounds the same. If, you know, these churches with dark auditoriums, smoke machines and all that. I mean, it's just, I don't know. I just, it doesn't make any sense to me. The Kenites' safety was in separation, not in mixing. And God commands us to do the same, separate from the world. Again, not not uh, turning our nose down on sinners, turning our nose down on sin. There's a difference there. So, um, Next week, we're going to get into uh, what happens when Samuel shows up. It's actually kind of humorous when Samuel shows up. We'll look at that starting at ne- ne- in two weeks, actually. Pray for us next week. We'll be at, uh, I'll be down at, at the uh, conference, uh, church planning conference, so the offering we took on Thanksgiving, we'll be uh, distributing that next week, so I'm excited about being down there and, and being able to give some of that. So pray for us while we travel for that. Let's have a word of prayer tonight as we close out.